Hello everyone, Stuart Patrick here from Radio Keys. We are super excited to announce that our vinyl records for our debut album are now available for purchase through our website. So just go to radiokeysmusic.com and then you can order them and we'll ship them to you or deliver them to you if you live in the Concord, California or immediate surrounding area. Anyway, here's the podcast. It just feels like we did a podcast yesterday because before now we haven't done one in like what what did we decide like three months um two months maybe we're getting back into the swing of things slowly slowly but surely very slowly but we're back we're back again we're trying to do a wednesday thing now at least hope to lost my microphone there for a second but uh, this week was a particularly sad week because usually when you lose an artist that you revere, um, they're kind of on the older side. Like it kind of happened a few times, you know, obviously when we were growing up, it was like Johnny Cash and Ray Charles. And then there were a few like... Uh, I remember uh, when um, George Harrison died. Yeah, that was a while ago too. Yeah, I think I took the day off school. We like heard it in the morning... Uh, on the radio when I was with mom and she said, do you want to take the day off school? Cause he was my favorite Beatle. And I said, yeah, I think I was in like third, fourth or fifth grade. Yeah. And then we lost uh bill withers this year, which was a tough, tough one. We lost, um, John, John Prine. Prine this year, which mm-hmm. was a tough one. And this one, Tom Petty, a couple, what, 2017 we lost. That Tom was Petty. Wi- it feels like it was yesterday. I think it was kind of a while ago. I'm, uh, Almost 100% sure it was 2017 because yeah. of where, where I was working when I found out about it. Oh, well, that, yeah, that's a good timeline. Yeah, you kind of have... I have all these very <laughs> visual memories, you know, of where, where I was. Where were, like where you were when it happened. When you well, heard about something. This one. So I think I speak for both of us when I say, like, when we heard this one um, about Justin Towns Earl, it was just like, something has to be incorrect. It like, was shocking. There, there I, has to be something wrong. He's only 38 years old. Uh, we've seen him play multiple times. I think yeah. I, I've seen him play. I think you drove to Santa Barbara one time to see him play. Maybe we can talk about just when we've seen him play a little bit to start it off. Um, well, yeah, I'll start with, you know, on Sunday. What was it? Sunday, August 23rd. Um, this last Sunday. Uh, I think I found out the way a lot of people found out. I was jumped on Instagram for a second and I saw, you know, this picture of him. Uh, playing guitar and I'll read. Do you want me to read the caption? Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. Um, I had to read it. There's a, somebody commented. One of the first comments was I had to read this five or six times to understand what, what was going on. Um, it is with tremendous sadness that we inform you of the passing of our son, husband, father, and friend, Justin. So many of you have relied on his music and lyrics over the years, and we hope that his music will continue to guide you on your journeys. You will be missed dearly, Justin. And then they quote, Uh, one of his songs looking for a place to land i've crossed oceans fought freezing rain and blowing sand i've crossed lines and roads and wandering rivers just looking for a place to land so i read that for a couple times and i was and i i was sitting next to tom and i didn't even say a word to him i just walked right over to you and i was like i think justin towns earl's dead and i was just like and i was shocked (laughs) i was i was just like what because i for some reason when you said that i was thinking you meant Steve Earl because he's older, you yeah, know, and your all brain that. Goes and to, I was like, yeah, you, does she mean be right. Steve Earl? 
So I said what a few times, and that just was crushing. Um, I remember when I first found out about Justin Towns Earl, I've, I've been on this Americana kick for a long time, and he popped up in like a recommended YouTube video or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. It wasn't his uh, recorded music that I got into at first. It was like his whole aura that I got into at first because he's like looking at that time. It was, uh, I think he was playing, um, geez, what was it? Um, ain't waiting. No, it wasn't eight waiting. Uh, but he had the, you know, the Stenson hat and he had yeah. all the finger tattoos and, and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, this guy looks kind of rough, but he's like a old school country guy. And it, he was just like very intriguing visually. Mm-hmm. Then the more you watched him play, like I went down this huge rabbit hole and I think I probably sent him to you. I was like, oh, yeah. you got to check this guy out. Like, and I just went down this rabbit hole of him playing and I was just blown away by his guitar playing the honesty of his lyrics and his vocal delivery um, and his performance too. So we we were fans. Jeez, I I don't want to say when we became fans of his. I, I feel like it was a I have while a, ago. I have a I have one of my first specific memories um, of watching him is I know that it was twenty eleven or twenty twelve because I was living in the Ellsworth house in Berkeley with six other roommates. I think it was twenty twelve. And I looked recently in the YouTube video I was thinking of is from twenty eleven, and it's I remember playing for my roommate Evan we both had these baby tailors and so we would play stuff and I would play ain't waiting yeah whenever we had somebody over and it's like oh Emily's a musician she'll play a song and my go-to still is ain't waiting because <laughs> it's just you know it's my three chords and like I learned how to do that little picking thing that he does just very subtly and I was like oh I was like so excited about playing that way so I would always play it and Evan was like play that country song play that country song play that country song that you know and he was talking about ain't waiting and then I remember one night we were all going through you know YouTube videos in the living room not quite rock concert but the early precursor the to early yeah the 2012 <laughs> the version yeah. of rock concert you know you're just looking at YouTube stuff with your roommates and I put on Justin Towns Earl it's the video of him doing my starter won't start in that weird little like the library library with this tiny little guitar and it's just him in this weird little guitar and he just starts it out and it immediately sounds like there's three guitars on stage but you're just watching him and you're just like it doesn't make sense it's like how is that much sound coming out of that small strange little guitar and then he starts singing and i remember there was maybe five of us in the living room and i remember everybody was silent throughout the whole video we were just watching it like what the what the fuck are we watching so i remember that you guys are all pretty high too or what (laughs) (laughs) maybe i don't know my berkeley days um and uh we used to make bake a lot of cookies in that house and um everybody was just floored by it. It was like whether or not this was the type of music that my roommates were generally going to be into. Everybody was just like, holy smokes, what am I watching? And he had that effect. He, he, yeah. uh, he had a very, like a, a gravitational pull to his performances where you just felt that way. And, and going back to his guitar playing, like he had, he's a big influence on my guitar playing because he played Me so too. percussively and I don't play nearly as percussively as he does. He's like, very aggressive with the snapping and the popping, but also the the he plays lead lines with his index finger, and they're very pronounced. Because again, he's like really digging under the string and, and snapping it. Yeah. And he's also doing um I forgot what he called it. It was a great word for it, but it's like when you kind of load up your fingers, um, almost like you're doing like a like a rock and roll sign, yeah. you know, and then you fa- and then you like flick them at the out. string, so it goes. It's like yeah. a I can't. 
it's he's basically like um, strumming them, but really aggressively with his fingernails. Yeah. So he does thumb upstroke with his index finger, slap with his yeah. m- middle finger and ring finger. So it's yeah. That's what I sat and practiced that to do. Ain't waiting because I was still so such a baby on guitar, and I still am in a lot of ways. But I was like, okay, I can play these three chords. But what's so interesting is what's going on with his right hand. Yeah. And. I've seen him three times and he's always been alone and he fills up the stage and the sound with, with his guitar playing. Uh, you didn't see him at Hardly Strictly? No, I wasn't with you, but I know you saw him with a full band. I, I saw the video him, of it. I think I've seen him multiple times at Hardly Strictly. I think you've seen him yeah, four or five times. I've seen him I've seen him three times. And the thing is, is like you see him with a full band and his, his impact on the rhythm and the song structure is a little bit castrated because... He has to adhere to the drummer, has to adhere to saying the, that. It's to the more bass player. In, yeah. And I was like, everything was so slow. Like I remember saying that when he was playing with a live band, and that's because he's not dictating the rhythm as much when he's with a full band. But when he's by himself, obviously he's dictating all the rhythm, and he has this incredible, or he had this incredibly percussive style I, um, I, I love seeing I him loved, by I himself. I, I remember you saying that about his Harley Strictly and I watched the video and everything seemed a little slow and I wonder if, you I'm know, in the video, by the way. <laughs> I, you are in the video um, and I know that was 2013 because I remember watching the video and seeing you walk by in front of, <laughs> it's Harley Strictly Bluegrass. It's from 2013. I'm 99% yeah. sure because Tom and I were living in our tiny little Berkeley studio and I was like, watching you know videos of justin towns earl and then i was like is that stewart and sure That's enough it was so funny i think i texted you a photo of it um if i even had a correct phone to do that in 2013 who I think, knows i think so we saw him also at soho in santa barbara which yeah. funny enough we were listening to the walk on the floor podcast and you played soho i have played soho but not anything like he played so <laughs> <laughs> he uh he was with chris shiflett from walking the floor and we got a lot of stuff from that interview because it was a great interview but Chris Shiflett's from Santa Barbara. Oh, yeah, so he mentioned they, that. Yeah, they kept bringing that up, and it made me think about, like, it was kind of funny. He was trying to shoehorn his childhood, uh, <laughs> like, next to, juxtaposed to Justin Towns Earl's childhood. Yeah, and you're like, I'm like, bro, uh, you grew up in Santa Barbara. Like, you didn't grow up on, like. <laughs> he's like, we. Ha- I think he meant when he said that, he's yeah. like, we had the same childhood. I think he means, like, they're similar in age, and they ha- they were listening to the same, like, yeah. music. Um, I could talk more about, I've seen him three times and I have two stories I remember from seeing him, but we can do that at the end or in the beginning. What do you Um, think? Let's, uh, let's do it in the beginning. Why not? All right, sure. We usually talk about ourselves a lot in the beginning anyway. Yeah, I have two, two memories. The first time I saw him was, uh, I think it's called Stillwater and it's like north of San Francisco somewhere. It's this little club with Tom and I want to say it was like 2013 or 2014 and we it was a super small packed club and i was so excited to see him for the first time and i remember that he there's one my biggest memory from the show is there's one song that he started and it was take my time i coming or take my time yeah. i leaving when you ask me where i'm going and he started it and then he stopped and then he started it and then he got a little further and then he stopped again and everybody was kind of like, woo, yeah, like didn't know how to react. And then he's like, I'm sorry, I can't remember the fucking lyrics. I'm going to move on. And he just went on to the <laughs> next song. 
was like, I was like, I've never seen that. That sounds like every solo show I've ever played. He's got, he said it. I was, I was listening to one of the podcasts today, but I love like the honesty. He made a joke. Everyone was cheering him on. They're like, we just thought it was such like an intimate experience that we were having. And he was Mm -hmm. so chatty. He was definitely talking shit about country music. Um, he was definitely, you know, telling stories throughout the songs and it was just so intimate. And um, he was a true, like, historian not not just about nashville which like if you listen to him talk about nashville in that chris shiflin interview oh my gosh like he he was a true historian about country music rock music definitely nashville's history blues his own history yeah. blues music like and he could definitely be a little uh, a little gatekeeper sometimes about it but like it's because he held it so close to him and yeah. it was so important to him so like a lot of people might be like oh you know he might talk shit about uh some of the modern country acts or something like oh, that. Oh, he like, talks about the bro country. He's and like, a, yeah. it's horrible. And he's yeah. like, if, you know, Buck Owens saw you, he'd want to like beat your ass with a pistol or some <laughs> shit like that, you know? <laughs> like, uh, so he, he was definitely that kind of guy who is like, you're, he was not, he's very, he was very gruff, I think, and like very outspoken and very, and he deserves to be, I think. Yeah. And, and he's, I mean, he's Americana royalty. Like even though he, he is Americana, he claims he doesn't have much influence from his father. I think it's hard. I think it's hard to say from an outside perspective no, that yeah. if you're Steve Earle's son, you have, you don't have a unique view on Americana and a unique respect from other musicians and, yeah. and other uh, music listeners and stuff like that. Like he, I, I've listened to about four podcasts that he's on today and I'll name them in a second. But in one of them, I think it was the NPR one I listened to. They, uh, people are constantly asking about his father and it's very fraught history that they have. But he does say in one of the more recent ones, he goes, you know, I'd be, it'd be the biggest lie of all time if I said that I wasn't, hugely influenced by Steve Earle's music, his father. Um, and we write differently and we make different music, but you know, as, as far as Americana, he's, yeah, it's a big influence on him. And mm-hmm. he, he also talks about just the term Americana and whenever, you know, he's talking about genre, he kind of moves away from even Americana and just says, you know, I'm just, I'm just writing this. And well, I had this he's great, telling American stories. Yeah. I felt this, I have this great quote. He says, I don't get into music. I didn't get into music to become a blues musician or a country musician. I'm a singer songwriter in my book. That means I get to do whatever I want. And that's kind of yeah. like the backbone of Americana. Yeah. And that's why we called ourselves Americana for so long is because we've, I mean, not to like juxtapose ourselves with Justin Towns role, but it's like we have so many different influences. It's tough to be like, Oh yeah, we're a blues band or we're a country band or we're a metal band or, well, we're definitely not yeah. that, but you know what I mean? Like, well, Americana is a little, it feels like more of a cat catch all. He does kind of refer to himself as a singer songwriter a lot, yeah. which I think is a nice broad way to put it. I mean, I, I think I know one of his influences is Bob Dylan and I'd put him closer to Bob Dylan than any modern quote unquote country um, type of music. Um, so real quick, I want to say before we get into his sort of a little bit of his biography, uh, you and I saw him the That's last right. time let's we saw finish, him yeah, let's wrap this up. Uh, in 2015. I just found a video on my phone from it. Um, we went with mom and we drove to San Francisco and we got pizza and we walked, that. we walked over to Slim's. Uh, this was December 26, 2019. Cause sorry, 2015. Cause it was rest the, in peace. Slim's by it, the way. Yeah. Slim's has gone too. It was the day after Christmas. So, which I didn't know it was called boxing day until this concert because he had this little, there was something that was like happy boxing day. And do you remember when we walked into the venue into slims, 
they hand they like here's a gift from justin towns earl happy boxing day and they handed everybody this little weird pouch do you remember this no yeah so he he was handing out gifts i didn't to remember the audience. a lot that day there so <laughs> they were they were blue and blue and yellow or blue and pink little bags like something you would take backpacking and they were little flashlights he so he gave everyone in the oh, audience a right. flashlight totally do you remember that, that? Yeah, yeah super strange and um and I do remember that like at some point, like our mom's a big fan. We got her into Ain't Waitin'. It's one of our favorite songs and she's a big fan. And I remember that his dog was on stage the whole time. That's true, yeah. And I remember, so before the concert started, I went over to his merch booth. I think you were with me. And I was like, I want to buy some vinyls because they're hard to find. And so I got two signed vinyl records of his and it took me a second to realize, but I, his wife was the one that I was chatting with that yeah. sold them to me and she was awesome she i was like oh i'd love to get a signed one and she's like you know i wish i've told him he should come out here and meet you guys and sign it in front of you but you know he he's like in his in the zone before he goes on stage and so he's back and i was like no of course of course like i get it um so we had a nice little chat and then uh about midway through the show you and i were kind of we're tall so we're in the back and i look around i'm like where's mom and she'd like snuck all the way to the front and she was like right in front of him and so i made my way over to her and then we watched the rest of his set including harlem river blues yeah and i love watching him play because it wasn't just like obviously we talked about it before it wasn't just his playing that was mesmerizing but also like the way he would just kind of hold court and like yeah. discuss different topics. Like I remember it was pretty funny. Like I was pretty drunk. So he was talking about sports and he was a avid baseball fan, huge baseball fan. And yeah. um, he was talking about how baseball was the only real f- sport. And then he was like, football's not a sport. And I was like, football's a sport. <laughs> like, just yeah, you felt almost like, feel like you're having a conversation yeah, with like him. I almost feel like you're having a conversation with him, He's but so that's just the way stage. he was. Yeah. And he like responded in like a very nice way, even though I was probably that drunk guy who was like, no, football's a sport. And he was like, oh yeah, but it doesn't have this and that and this. And it was like, a, it was just interesting to see him in that kind of element. Um, and I remember one time uh, in Santa Barbara, I think long before that even, you had traveled to Santa Barbara specifically to see him at Soho with me. So that Yeah, was, this was probably yeah. earlier, maybe 2011, 2012. I'm not really sure. Early. Yeah. So anyway, let's. you want to get right into it? Let's jump um, in. So yeah. he was born in Nashville, Tennessee on uh, January 4th, 1982. He's the son of uh, Carol Ann Hunter. Um, Earl, she took on Steve Earl's last name at the time. They they ended up getting divorced pretty soon, right? When he was like two or three or something yeah. like that. Steve was gone by the time yeah, he was two. If you haven't heard of Steve Earl, this isn't a Steve Earl podcast, so you should look up Steve Earl. Um, it's a pretty, he's a pretty important figure in this story that we're going to right. tell about Justin Towns Earl, but I don't want to spend the time talking about him just because he's not who we are inspired by or who we I find interesting in this full disclosure I, I hadn't heard of him when you sent me justin towns earl i hadn't heard of steve earl i had heard of him but i just i wasn't like uh i wasn't like a fan i wouldn't say i was i didn't i didn't dislike him i just wasn't a fan yeah but uh he there's no no doubt that he's a americana megastar oh yeah and just uh, yeah huge so if you don't know who just uh, american sorry, legend. steve earl is you know just maybe pause this real quick google them and and then you'll maybe get a better understanding of where justin came from um but he always likes to make it clear that like he was his mother's son more than he was steve earl's son he was like people ask me what it's like to and i'm kind of paraphrasing but people ask me what it's like to grow up with steve earl and i don't tell him i don't fucking know because <laughs> he didn't really grow up with steve earl so 
Uh, he has a quote I'll say. Um, so I wanted to real quick, I listened to all these podcasts today and I kind of typed out a lot of these quotes, but I, I listened to the walking the floor with Chris Shiflett podcast where he interviews Justin Towns are all, I listened to the broken record podcast that they released this episode yesterday of an interview with Justin Towns are all that I, they don't say when the interview's from, but it sounds like it's pre COVID. I listened to NPR's interview with him from 22014 and I listened to... Don't you wish he I, had a podcast? <laughs> Jesus. Oh, like, sorry. Obviously, I listened to the Rolling Stone interview with him from 2012. Can you imagine if he had a podcast? How <sighs> incredible that would have been just to hear him so tell much. stories and like... Because like He's I said... He's a great uh, storyteller on these podcasts. Like whether or not the hosts are... Some, like Chris Shiflett, by the way, is great. He does host. a great He's job. asking great questions and he's not just focusing yeah. on what was it like being Steve Earl's son? You know, yeah. like he really gets into some, and he does his research before too, which yeah, I well, enjoyed. Yeah, he's a gigging musician too. He plays guitar yeah, they for can, the Foo Fighters and does his own solo thing. So he has an idea of what it's like to be a gigging touring musician. Yeah. So he definitely, he's not like these... You radio know, guys these radio guys or these you know music journalist guys who want to get a cool story or they want to get they want to get justin towns earl's take on his or dad they didn't you know research or, or him and they're be. just like you're steve earl's son let's talk about that but all the interviews i listened to today that i just mentioned were pretty good i also listened to a tiny bit of a words and music podcast where he's interviewed where he's talking about how the type of the whole point of that podcast is the type of literature that influences musicians and he's talking about like what types of books like influence the songwriting. So I, I got a lot of cool quotes from him today that I'm going to pull. The first one I'll say is from one of those podcasts, <laughs> one of the many, um, I'm Steve Earl's son, but my mom was number three of eight wives. He was gone before I was two. I grew up with my mother who worked three jobs. Yeah. And there's a few, uh, so he, he, um, he did live with his father briefly according to, um, I, I got that according to Wikipedia. Yeah. But so he did somewhat, you know, have a relationship with him. I know that his dad was sending him a lot of records. Yeah. Um, so that was a way they kind of kept in contact. So he, he talked about how he had like Nirvana's bleach and that when it came out in the eighties. Yeah. So he knew like this kind of, this style of music, he, his dad was sending him ACDC tapes. I think it was yeah. cassettes back then. Right. I think I said CD, but I think there were tapes. Back it's got to be tapes, and yeah. <clears throat> I think I think you're right. I think around twelve. He he mentions around twelve is when he started to get to know his dad. I did want to say one thing. He um, so he's named his middle name is after a friend of his father and a big I think musical influence of mu- musical influence of his father, Towns Van Zant. And he says, um, I found this quote today that I love. It's from Rolling Stone. My mother hated Towns Van Zant. My first name was supposed to be Towns, but mother would have none of it. She hated him because of the trouble that <laughs> dad and him got into. So I guess Towns Van Zant and Steve Earl were buddies. Uh, he said, but she still played his music around the house. So he heard a lot of Towns Van Zant growing yeah. up, which I think is interesting. His mom was able to separate the person from the music. Yeah. So, so he had, I mean, he had a brief relationship with his dad. We have it up here just because it, a lot of you know, of I think sometimes Justin Towns Earl, um, he was such a storyteller that I think sometimes it's a little bit hard to se- to separate like some of his quotes, like the f- the legend of Justin Towns Earl, with like the actual, you know, factual past of Justin Towns Earl, yeah, and how much of it is true and how much of it is is uh, you know not I don't want to say fabricated, but you know, like Im- imagined and and built up. 
Oh, I think he also genuinely gets jumbled up a little bit. Like in the Walking the Floor podcast, Chris Shiflett asked him about his sobriety and he, he kind of can't, he's like, well, you know, 10 years here and here. And maybe when I was recording my first record, I was sober and maybe I, and he's like, well, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, he's basically like, yeah. it's all over the place. It's his life. And when I was listening to one of the podcasts today, he's talking about all the tracks on his first couple records and he's totally mixing up, which I would totally do if I had eight records kind of mixing up, which songs are on, which yeah. as he's telling the story and it's like, well, you know, it's, it's his life and it's a little jumbled up and well, also, that's, the, that's the nature yeah. of it. You also write songs at different times and then you might exactly not put, put a song a, yeah. that you have had written for like five years it's on not, a record. It's, I don't think any musician that I don't think it's really chronological the way that, yeah. Like for example, yeah. I wrote, my side of town pretty soon before we recorded the record. Oh, it was probably one of the most recent songs. And there's songs that I haven't, you know, ever recorded or even performed live. And I've had them for like five years. Yeah. It's, it's what fits on the album. So yeah, totally. And, um, so he had a brief relationship with his father. It seems like when he was growing up, um, and young, he was a guitar tech for his dad's guitarist, um, Eric Amble. And he said he lo- learned a lot about the music industry that way. Oh, it yeah. was unclear to me when he was doing this. I think it might have been like his early 20s or I something. I think it, it sounded like it was around 2000, the year 2000. So he would yeah. have been 18. But apparently he, he got fired from, by his dad from that. Oh, I, I know that yeah. story I read oh, today. Uh, yeah, he he said I think the, the catalyst for the breaking point was they were in Berlin and he was just really fucked up and he got this bottle of red hair dye for some reason and he went into his hotel room and it's the Millennium Hotels and he says to this day he's banned from them. Yeah. And he he says, I went to dye my hair and then I woke up and the hotel room was covered in red and I thought it was blood. <laughs> but what really had happened is he went to dye his hair and then he just never washed it out and got fucked up and was like rolling around the room or something and went to sleep and he just got this red hair dye like all over this like white hotel room and they were like you're done <laughs> so he said he cost ten thousand dollars in damages and, to that like, hotel. and he said that was two thousand so he would have been 18 yeah okay I mean, he's your 18 you're on tour with it I, yeah it's yeah. a lot that's a lot but yeah he, he said he learned a lot about it and he would also do like some auxiliary work too like he said if his dad was playing like harmonica or something oh yeah he would be like in the back playing the rhythm guitar and stuff so he was yeah. doing a little bit of that too um but he going back to when he was growing up, he yeah. grew up uh, listening to Nirvana a lot. Bleach. And it's so it was so awesome to hear this because this is like the exact same uh, point that I was listening to the same kind of shit, like alternative music, you know, punk, not really punk, but like punk rock inspired music, old school rock and roll like Led Zeppelin and ACDC. And then there was Nirvana's um, Unplugged record. And yeah. he said he said something that was so important. He was like, this was the most important moment in my like musical upbringing. Like, he, he really referenced it. Like, this is the most important part. And it I was, think I have it. Yeah? Um, yeah, when... I think Chris Shiflett asked him, did you take guitar lessons when you were a kid? And he says, I never took one. I'm 35 now. There was a defining moment in my life as a musician, which was the Nirvana Unplugged record. Where did you sleep last night? or, and then he goes, or in the pines or whatever you want to call it was on it. I thought just like every other kid in America, probably that that was a Kurt Cobain song. And his dad goes, no, 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 that's a lead belly song. And so that song introduced him to lead belly. 
Yeah, and he said the wheels went in reverse after that, and yeah. I started going backwards. Yeah. So some of the guys he started listening to after that was like, you know, very old Western country and blues music, you know, starting with Lead Belly, which led, led him to Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, Woody yeah. Guthrie, Bob Dylan. And he was just, he said, I still listen to like, you know, uh, The Chronic with my friends. Oh, yeah, he mentioned yeah, that. He was yeah. like, I was listening to The Chronic with my friends, but when I was by myself, I was like sneaking in all these old country records. So it was almost like he didn't want to tarnish his cred. So <laughs> he was like listening to, to, you know, these super old, old artists by the time he was, you know, 12 years old. Yeah. And it sounds like that's around the time he started to pick up the guitar. Um, when he was around 12 or 13. Yeah, he says I think he, he that's was when he 12, like yeah. put a guitar pick down and started trying to play with his fingers. And he and learned... that's because of Lead Belly as because well. Because of Lead Belly, watching yeah. Lead Belly. And he says he learned to play a song called The So Different Blues by Mance Lipscomb. And he says this really complicated ragtime song that his dad showed him. And his dad was like, you're not going to be able to, to play this. And Justin was like, just show it to me. And he just he just learned it himself and just became kind of obsessed with this style of playing from there. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> at that point, um, by the time he was twelve, he picked up the guitar. He also picked up a lot of bad habits and bad friends. At, at that twelve, point. Yeah. yeah. At twelve, and this is kind of where I'm like, where's is he really doing all this shit at twelve? Because he he'll say like he does all this crazy shit. He's pretty consistent saying that, and this is yeah. 1994. Twelve and is he's just in, so young. Like he's I had, in South I, had Nashville. A, I had a student today who is 11, and she's like, you know, just like the most innocent, like sweet little girl of all time. And it's like then you hear him on the, you know, I listened to the podcast that he was on with Chris Shiflet, and I'm like. Oh, he was 12, like, trying yeah, to... It, it's hard to picture that. Yeah, so he said when he was 12, he was, like, getting in the car with, like, older kids. Yeah. And they'd be driving to punk concerts in, like, Memphis and all these other areas. And he'd get home super late. You know, his mom, like he said, had three jobs, so there probably wasn't a ton of supervision right. at the house. And um, then he'd have to wake up and go to school the next day. And at a certain point, he just stopped waking up and going to school. So yeah. he dropped out. Says he dropped out in eighth grade, which is about... 12, 12, 13 ish, right? Yeah, and he 13? talked about yeah he talked about going to Memphis and picking up like like black tar, like Mexican heroin, and like slamming it with his friends and like you know having sex and drinking and doing all this crazy shit at like 12, at 12, 13 yeah. years old. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where he uh, dropped out of school yeah. and just started doing music. And um, he has some funny he has some funny quotes. He was like, at 14, I could play most of Lead Belly's catalog, but I could also get you a kilo of cocaine and an AK-47. <laughs> so so another- he's playing obsessively. He said at some point he was playing guitar uh, from like noon to 7 p.m. every day. Yeah, he um, said he was he was playing gigs at this one place. I had oh, that's it, what it is. Yeah, that's I had it, it in here. Yeah, um, it's... um. It's the Stillwater. Yeah, that sounds about uh, so right. So he played, sorry, Springwater. He started playing at that a place called right. <laughs> Springwater as a kid. Um, and he would play from noon to 7 p.m. and develop his chops that way. Sorry, I jumped ahead a little bit. And he said there were a lot of like real rough and tumble characters there that would give you a lot of shit. So you kind of had to learn to yeah, work like a the rough room. crowd. And you had to learn to, you know, play songs that people like. You just have to learn to, to be a performer. And I think that might be where he like, started to really carve out his um his aura and like also you gotta fill a lot of time in a seven yeah. hour set could you imagine like so i imagine seven that's kind of where day. he got into the bantering uh aspect yeah his banter of his is, life is so it's the most like natural 
like unprovoked, just like calm, like stream of consciousness banter. It feels like you're just sitting in a room with him playing guitar and he's chatting at you and you're having a conversation. Yeah. Like that's how warm it feels. I wanted to say one quote um, about him sort of turning, um, kind of turning and why he says, I think I was dealing with a lot of things I didn't know how to deal with between my father leaving and my mother bringing in a slew of drunken bastard boyfriends to live with us for a little while. By the time I emerged from my parents' household at 15 years old, I was a very fucked up kid. I discovered very fast that my way of doing things was going to get me in trouble. And I kept going with it because I believed the myth for a long time. And I believed I had to destroy myself to make great art. That's I, that's a Rolling Stones quote. I just, yeah, I think it's great, but so anyway, so he's dropped out of eighth grade. <laughs> yeah. So starts playing at Springwater. Uh, um, he's tw- it sounds like he's 12, 13, 14. Yeah. He says he'd play for about two hours, take a break, go out to have a cigarette, and they'd sneak him pictures of beer. So he's like drinking at the gig. Well, he's doing everything. As like a middle like, schooler. <laughs> he said he was a fun. Like he said he was kind of a functioning addict. Like yeah. he would like quote work, you know, play music and do all that kind of stuff. Seven from, hours from of playing like so twelve long. to seven, and he's like after that it was speedball time. So he was like. You know, just all he was all about. He was like hyper focused on his music, but then also hyper focused on like partying and like doing all that kind of stuff. And like you said, probably subconsciously trying to you know break himself down and like create a story that's worth yeah. telling. You know, because that's live what a little. He talks about living, living a lot, and having to go through that living in order to write. So at that point, he's still in Nashville. He's doing all that kind of stuff. But at 15, he uh, ran away to, he calls it the hills of eastern Tennessee. I think it was Johnson City. Mm. So I think he moved to Johnson City um, where he wanted to see what was up with that uh, hillbilly music is what he said. Yeah. And um, he met a guitar player named Malcolm Holcomb, who's actually a fairly well-known guitarist. You can look him up. He's in his 60s. I picture like... 20 you know five-year-old malcolm holcomb hanging out with a 15-year-old justin townsend maybe even gosh a bigger age gap he and he does cite him as a huge influence on his guitar picking too along with the earlier stuff of lead belly and stuff yeah and uh he said that like he got introduced to a lot of really great music and he knew that by moving to johnson city it would um be an adventure it would be something different a change of scenery but apparently uh, it was really tough living out there because uh, uh, Malcolm Holcomb basically went up to him and he's like, look, man, you're writing a lot of great music, doing a lot of great things here in Johnson City, but the way that you're living, like you're going to end up dead if you keep living wow. out here. So you got to move You got to move on at a yeah. certain point. So he was like, he was moving around and playing shows. I can't remember the, bro- the two dudes who he... He said they oh, were the like brothers his brothers. Yeah. To, yeah, I'm not sure if they were brothers or if he was just calling them two brothers. Like two, I, I it was like one of I those. I can't remember their names. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. But he's got in a van with them. They were all uh, singer songwriters, and they would just go to coffee shops and travel all around. That's when his touring life started. And I was really trying to find history of his touring today, but I couldn't find anything reliable. It's hard to figure out where where they were going when he says we were touring, and that could mean that could mean very local. Um, I did. He did. Uh, somebody did ask him in one of the podcasts. Do you remember the first couple songs you wrote that I thought was interesting? And he says the first song he ever wrote was "Halfway to Jackson" when he was fourteen years old, 
And then he wrote, ain't glad I'm leaving and turn out my lights when he was 15. And then Rogers Park when he was 17. And he says, those songs lasted. I wrote a ton of shit back then. When I was a teenager, I wrote tons, tons. And a lot of it's embarrassing as hell. <laughs> but you got to go through that. You got to write bad songs and try them out. So I think he was. I've written so many bad ones. <laughs> yeah, he's sort of, uh, we'll talk about it a little later, but he, he's sort of an obsessive songwriter now and that he does a bunch of different drafts and he really is is thoughtful about all of it and doesn't really go with first draft. And it sounds like, you know, he was already early on knew like, you know, you got to know what to hold on to and what to throw away. And so a couple of those songs lasted, but yeah, starting to write full blown songs at 14. I mean, that impressed me, especially halfway to Jackson. Well, I think moving to, uh, I think moving to Eastern Tennessee was like a huge peak in his life for songwriting. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he like, did what everyone does where you learn how to play guitar or at least, you know, this is like kind of the blueprint that I find from like yeah. the guitar teaching that I do to my own experience, to my friends that I talk to is you start playing and you're just trying to figure the, the damn thing out. Like you're just like, what, what is going on with this thing? You know, you're trying to become consistent. Yeah. You're trying to find chords that work together. You're trying to find some shapes that work together. Yeah. He said real quick, I'll just say he, he says in one of these podcasts, I, I play, started playing the guitar. I don't know any theory whatsoever. I know where the capo goes and where my fingers go. Yeah. So he was, the, these people baffle me. <laughs> that yeah. They just like can figure it out. It's, it's amazing to me. Well, it's, it's using your, your ear. Your, your ear, yeah. But also, I, I was the same way before. I didn't learn any theory until community college. Well, so, did you know like I'm playing a D minor Not for the first like three years I was That's playing. Nuts. I didn't even learn, like some guy, it was so funny. I remember I, I said this same story in like an older podcast and some guy like commented on it. He's like, I call bullshit <laughs> because I said I didn't learn chords to start, like open chords, like D, G, you know, any of that. No, you learn more like lead lines? I learned like, lead lines, like Hendrix lines. Yeah. Like I was interested in learning like riffs, purple or, haze, maybe not voodoo riffs, child. Yeah. yeah, riffs. I wanted to learn yeah. riffs. And then I started learning like Nirvana, which was all power chords. And yeah. and so I'm not lying when I say I didn't learn open chords until about two, three years into playing. That's I didn't have any use for them. Plus they sound like like pure like they sound pretty bad on electric guitar. So it's like when you're playing on electric guitar, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're like ring, <laughs> ring. It just sounds like it doesn't sound like as a C good. Or a G. Yeah, but you on play an that acoustic, on acoustic, it sounds it's incredible. Like, but like, yeah, it's gorgeous. I wasn't interested in acoustic. And it, uh, to kind of go back to the Nirvana thing, that's like, like I said, that's exactly why I started playing acoustic guitar was because I started getting into Unplugged and I started yeah. getting into like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club and their Howl record. And, oh yeah, it's and, a great um, record. And then you know, then it evolved into players like Justin Towns Earl and yeah so um, basically where I was going with this is when you start playing guitar I was kind of marrying the two like learning tools of watching an accomplished guitarist that I love and respect play and then trying to translate that sound and the look of their hands to the guitar that's amazing so if I see Hendrix playing like his hand looks like this yeah and like a I'm, claw for those of you listening at home. Yeah, like this. <laughs> and my hand looks like this, then I know I'm doing it yeah, wrong. So I would like fingers. look in the mirror and try to get my hand to look like Hendrix's hand. Uh, and uh, I'm sure he did very similar things. Well, you were playing, you started playing. 14 was when I played. So this is 2002 ish. 
Am I, did I get that right? So no, this is two thousand. No, yeah, you're right, Frick. Dude, it's been 2003. Well, my point wow. is, I'm not trying to call you out for your age. My yeah. point is that, oh like, god, I'm old. You're, you know, <laughs> Google wasn't really a thing. This is what 2002, 2004. It was, a, it's like, it was kind of you a can kind of Google chords, but like not to the degree. I don't think that you can now. Well, now there's and YouTube like, was not. A yeah, thing. well, there's a database. Was, I'm sure that it was, but I didn't know about it. There's a database of tablature. Now it's like guitartabs.com. You can find any song ever. You can find yeah. rap songs. You can find anything. Yeah. There's one website that I don't know what it's called, but you can like plug a song into it and it'll like recognize the chords and give you the chords. It's just like yeah. you can you can do whatever you want. I remember my uh, jazz <laughs> one of my jazz teachers lost his damn mind on us one day. He was like <laughs> telling us how much we all sucked, and he was like. <laughs> You guys have fucking Spotify and YouTube <laughs> and you can't even fucking figure out this one song. Like he was literally, he was telling us like, you have an entire, he's like, you have um, hundreds of years of music at your fingertips. He's like, I, <laughs> I love a public so meltdown. Funny. It's my favorite thing. He was like, dude, it was like the fucking day before a concert too. And he was like, Morale he was like, low. I had to go to record stores. <laughs> And like listen to it like it was so funny but it's like I, kind of, it. I was like not that much but i was like kind of true like very similar where all i could do was watch like a hendrix vhs that i had or the woodstock dvd that i got later yeah and then that. try to find like tablature i had a i had a tab book of hendrix and i also found like some tablature on like forums and stuff and it's like that's all i had to work with was looking at his hand while he's playing Looking at the tabs, looking back and forth, looking at my hand in a mirror and be like, is this lining up at all? Wow. So I imagine when he started playing guitar, it was a very similar situation because he didn't know any theory. So when they say, hey, play a G chord in 1992, this is the 90, 90s, yeah. 93. Yeah. Excuse me. It's not that easy. Yeah. To just go, okay, let me get, 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 get Google or and look it on your phone, again, it Google. Doesn't, it doesn't sound like his, his dad was like, here, I'm going to teach you guitar. He, I've never heard him say that or that yeah. his dad was like, he, it sounded like he was going, oh, well, that's Led Belly. Oh, that's so-and-so and kind of give, feeding him a little bit of music. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't sound like he was like, you're going to be a guitar player too. It sounds like Justin really found that on his own and obsessed over it yeah. by his own means and in his own really special way and developed his style that way. You have to imagine that like he was inspired by his father to, oh, for in sure. a certain way. Yeah, like, and he's admitted it. You know, he's like, I think maybe 20, not 20 years ago, 10, 20, maybe 20 well, years was, ago, he wouldn't have admitted it, but even, he does now. Yeah, or he did. even then, like his father sent him that Nirvana Bleach record. Yeah. That, sorry. And ACDC, I remember. And ACDC. <laughs> yeah. And Guns N' Roses and all this stuff. And like, so he became a Nirvana fan because his dad was sending him tapes. Yeah. And then, it was unplugged that changed his life. And, um, well, and his dad was the one who said, Oh no, that's, that's a lead belly song and named yeah. it. And we, they, he didn't have Google where he'd be like, is this Kurt Cobain song a cover? Like he thought yeah. as you would think it's like, Oh, this is his song. We have a whole episode on that, on the uh, unplugged recording and, and performance and record. And oh yeah, you did a good definitely recommend that. going back and listening to it because for anyone out there who hasn't heard of Nirvana Unplugged or its impact, not only on like people like Justin Towns Earl, but on the music world. Yeah. And um, Nirvana's impact on the music world obviously was huge. But anyway, let's get back to Justin. Um, so at this point, he was touring around in that van with those two brothers. Right. 
They were playing some coffee shops and stuff. He's 17 year, years old, and he decides to move to Chicago mostly because of the Chicago blues, and he's like, I want to see right. what that was all about. Yeah, like, during this whole time, he's been digging deep, deep into... And when you hear him talk about the history of American music and blues music in America, it's like he knows what he's talking about. He really... He lived it. Yeah, he well, lived he lived it. it, and yeah, he's really done these deep dives, he's and like, he can talk about... Yeah this well, yeah he went there like he paid pil- these are almost like pilgrimages like yeah he was like i want to learn about this quote hillbilly music i'm going to where they do it i'm that's, going that's to johnson city it's a very I old learn school about way of chicago about blues. it yeah i want to go to chicago yeah, i'm gonna go play. see the local players and he talks about nashville in the 90s was obviously not what it is now but he says it just wasn't he said it was so a very different. tough and and uh yeah a really tough area. Well, now it's a very commercially like this is where this is the heart and soul of country music. But he's like it was it was it, it had this amazing music scene, but yeah. it wasn't what it is now. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, he did some travels to Memphis and lived so in Chicago. He, it's funny. He said he didn't stay long. He said he got into a lot of trouble very fast, yeah. which is funny. And it's also worth mentioning a big reason why he left Nashville to go to. Not only to, you know, to do this, you know, innocent, I'm going to check out hillbilly music or I'm going to check out Chicago blues. One of the main things for him moving from city to city is I got into a lot of trouble. So I went to Johnson City. I got in a lot of trouble. So I went to Chicago. And then he's like, I got in a lot of trouble in Chicago. Yeah. And you start hanging out with the wrong crowds and you got to kind of distance yourself from those people. Yeah. I've had some rough friends that meet bad people and they got to get out of that city to get away from it. So he was offered his first record deal with Luke Lewis and Lost Highway, I think at this time when he was 17, maybe 18, mm-hmm. um, on a developmental basis. And a developmental basis is kind of like, uh, we're going to invest in you. We're going to like try to figure out if you're worth keeping. It's not like a full-on guarantee or anything like that. It's like, we're going to see where this goes. Yeah. So he ended up you know, being one strung out like junkie at this point yeah um he was like i was saying earlier he was functioning during the day but then just getting wrecked at night and just was very strung out so he got into a bunch of trouble there they helped him get into like a sobriety house mm, basically the label? Yeah, yeah this uh lost highway records helped him out got out of that sobriety house and immediately started relapsing and doing oh. all that so they dropped him um, yeah. very quickly after that. But uh, in 2008, I'm not, am I jumping here? This is when he's 17. So yeah, in 2008, uh, he also... Oh no, sorry, 2080s. Wait, he was born in 82, so he's... 81, right? 82, 82 my bad. So he's, he's seven, 16. No, so, wait. 26? <laughs> What's wrong with that? What happened math? to the... <laughs> 26 at this point, right? Yeah. I was like, so, okay, wow, so I jumped forward a lot, but 92. I don't have a lot. This in is 2002, he's 20. This is, must have been so when he was touring around with his father. Because he didn't release his first record until 2008. Or maybe, I think I put 2008 in our notes, so I apologize, but in Spotify, it says 2008 when the Yuma uh, EP came out, but a lot of people say it's 2007, so I'm not 100% sure on that. Well, it says here he released A Good Life in 2008, so also, yeah, it has to be early full length. That. Yeah, 2007, I think, is when Yuma came out. For some reason, yeah, on Spotify, it says 2008. But so it's still, I, I'm not really sure what happened in those middle years from 18 to 25. Do you have anything on that? I think, no, I think he was... Um, 
I think I, I know he was playing for his dad and then he had a couple little bands that he was playing with, not little bands, but bands that he was playing with really briefly and fronting. I think he was just probably playing a lot of live stuff and working and then working to get sober. He was because working as time, a roadie too. Yeah, he was a roadie tech. And then, yeah, by the time he said a couple times, a reoccurring theme of these podcasts that I listen to of, of him talking is him saying that by the time he started recording records, he was sober. So by the time Yuma comes out in 2007 and he's 25, he's sober. Gotcha. So I, but then he kind of jumps around and he goes, well, then I fell off and then I can, as, as you did, you know, he's explaining his, his life and how it's a little bit all over the place. Cause jumbled. he's a little all over the place. Yeah. Cause he's a little jumbled. Yeah. Um, let's see. So now we'll get into his, his records. I, I would say Yuma's an EP. And then after that, he goes on to make what I would call eight studio records. But there are two records that he calls sort of one. If you go on to Spotify, they're all in one record. And that's the, um, what is it? Um, single mothers, absent fathers. But so, yeah. So he does Yuma in 2007 and he starts. Do you want to tell the story about how he funded that? Yeah. yeah. It, he, uh, so he was living, I think, with his girlfriend at the time, and she lent him $1,000 to record the record and press the record, yeah. which he did. And it got a little bit of commercial success. Uh, by that, like I mean, like, songs, individual. Because like, when you... Yeah. Yeah, six So songs. he pressed it, and he, um, he sold 2,000 copies. So that's not huge commercial success. He's not charting anywhere. But as an independent musician, let me tell you, if we sold... 2,000 of our records, that would be about $60,000, which would be a shot in the arm, to be sure. So <laughs> it seems like he was, like, you know, doing pretty well for himself at the time, at, at least in, you know, the mid 2000s, sorry, late 2000s. Um, so once he started selling these records, he got a booking agency um, for, like, house concerts and smaller shows. And uh, this is the point in time where he... Um, signed with bloodshot records. I think they re-released Yuma later. I wanted to say real quick, I lost this quote I have from him. I'm not sure where it went because I've got all these notes, but he talks about, uh, Yuma, I believe the EP. And he says he has a photographer who still has photographers this day. And I think his name is Joshua Wilkins. And I'm terrified because I don't have, I've lost the quote. Anyway, he says that he, uh, his photographer um, said, hey, you're Justin Towns Earl, right? For the cover, because he's designing the cover of the record. And he goes, no, just Justin Earl. And the photographer, the photographer says, no, 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 Justin Towns Earl, Justin Towns Earl. That's, uh, he's like, I don't care what you think. That This is what's going to look better on the, on the cover of the yeah. record. And so that's kind of how he has his full name as his stage name, which he originally, he's like, I was 100% going to be Justin Earl. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm kicking myself because I can't find. I'm pretty sure it's Joshua Wilkins, but anyway. Yeah. Um. Find so it. yeah, it's all good. So, so yeah. So that was his first EP, and he sort of made a splash with that. And I think you know he said something about this is Yuma, right? Yuma, Yuma. yeah, his EP, first EP. Uh, he said something about his dad. You know, when he would write songs when he was younger, he'd run to his dad's studio and be like, "Hey, like." I wrote this song and his dad was always like back to the drawing board, like really hard on his songwriting. And so by the time this came out, these were, you know, six songs that he'd filtered out through all these songs that he'd written and he'd really kind of picked just like we did with our first record or anyone does. Um, you kind of pick the best of the best. And he also said that his father told him, you know, if you're going to go out into the country music scene or any music scene 
you know, you're going to get, they're going to come for you or something like that. He's like, they're going to come after you because you have this kind of this pedigree pedigree is the perfect word. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's his first record, I think came out with like a lot of pressure for him. Like this is Steve Earle's son. What is this going to be? And it sounds nothing like his dad. And it's, it gets a ton of positive attention from all these big people. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's yeah. Well, it's, it's great. It's rich in storytelling. It's yeah. very sparse, broken down, acoustic guitar kind of stylings. So um, it always starts out. With, it starts out with that baby crib thing, which I don't love hundred percent. But <laughs> oh yeah, I was hearing uh, that. Yeah. But uh, it has some great tunes, and it was like the Ghosts of Virginia. Ghosts of Virginia. You can't yeah. have Yuma, which is a heartbreaking song. I don't care. Let the waters rise, which is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And he sings a lot about like he makes a lot of parallels between like the weather and sort of love and emotion that kind of thing and then he has desolate angel blues it's a it's a fantastic record so he bounced around from a lot of record labels but the first real record label he had other than the one that dropped him off that development deal because they obviously didn't record anything with him was um bloodshot Records. so he was playing one of these house shows that i was talking about he got a booking agency booked him a concert house show in chicago and um the place he was staying at fell through because if you're a you know up-and-coming musician you're not necessarily staying in hotels you're crashing on couches you're staying with friends of friends and you're just trying to get <laughs> get to the next day basically yeah. so that fell through they his buddy calls up uh his buddy he ends up staying at that guy's buddy house. of a buddy so that guy ended up being robbed from bloodshot records and they stayed up all night talking and the guy was like yeah i'll come uh, rob was like i'll come check check out your show tomorrow and um Saw him play, and then six months later, they were making a record. I think that was The Good Life, right? Yeah, The Good Life is his first full record, and I think it's 10 songs. Let's pull it up. 10 songs released in 2008. Yeah, The Good Life. I have this vinyl, too, signed. Starts off with Hard Living. Um, I love that song, Hard Living, by the way. What's, on, what's the track listing on that? Hard Living. Uh, let's see. Hard Living, The Good Life, Who Am I to Say, Lone Pine Hill, I love South Georgia songs. Sugar Babe, What Do You Do When You're Lonesome, Turn Out My Lights, Lonesome and You, Ain't Glad I'm Leaving, Far Away in Another Town. Ain't Glad I'm Leaving, he said. He was talking about songwriting in one of these. Sorry, I'm having all these memories from all these podcasts I listen to, so I don't have the yeah. perfect quotes, but he was talking about the song Ain't Glad I'm Leaving, and he was saying, you know, as far as being a good songwriter, I just wanted to listen a lot. Like I wanted to listen a lot. Nowadays it's like, don't be too into your phone and like to sort of just listen to the world that's outside of you. He said he was in a diner and he was eavesdropping on a couple behind him. And the guy said to the woman, if you ain't glad I'm leaving girl, you ought to be. And that's the chorus for ain't glad I'm leaving. He's like, I want, he's like, Oh, I'm going to write this song. Like it's like, so he's, he's picking, yeah, he's picking up, uh, some, Stuff from the outside world. Yeah, sorry. His photographer, I got it right, I think. Joshua Black Wilkins. Um, so he's his long-term photographer. I think all of his album covers are this guy. And he's the one who suggested he be Justin Towns Earl. So I just wanted to get that right. Nice. Okay. So in this point, I think we're going to get just kind of go from record to record pretty quickly, right? Yeah. I, I, I think, um, let's see. I did want to say... Oh, um, we both listened to the Walk in the Floor, Chris Shiflett uh, podcast today where he talks about recording. So I wanted to say a little bit about that. It sounds like he, one thing shocked me um, is that it sounds like every time he goes to record a record, he records his guitar playing along with his 
vocals no matter what he never yeah. does them separately he always does them together which well, he for, does them together with the drum i mean there yeah. are a lot of acoustic records he he did and the songs he did right but he said for full band stuff he has to record drums bass his acoustic guitar and his vocals at the same time yeah so that's which kind of a, a ballsy move to do that because there's and he also didn't record to a click track which we didn't yeah, no do click. either so it's once you do that it's it's very hard to be like well your you know second chorus really sucked in this take but the rest of it's so good i just want to drop in that second chorus do it. from a different take it's got to be the same take but you can't because there's a little bit of a fluctuation in, in the, the tempo speed. it's got to be the same r- run of the song that everyone's doing yeah every time. so it's a very old school way of recording um <laughs> he also said he'd change the lyrics sometimes in one take or another take yeah and it, somebody would call him and be like hey you said this in this version of the song and then the next take you said this and he's like oh just pick one like well, well that was like, specifically the record uh what was it um the kids in the street kids in the street i love that because record. he recorded that was i think probably the maybe i'm wrong here but at the time the only record he hadn't recorded in nashville yeah it's the first um, record he recorded outside of nashville because he recorded that record in god where was it nebraska omaha nebraska sounds right and it, he had a lot of funny quotes about that he's like um you know if there's a player there that you don't like you just got to live with it you can't fire him it's and not nashville where you're yeah. like there's a million slide guitar yeah. players that i can pick from here yeah and uh he yeah so most of his uh records were done in nashville and yeah he has a funny quote uh from that chris shifflin interview he's like he's like you want hookers and gambling you go to vegas you want to make music you go to he's like you want to make, make a, record, a record you go to nashville yeah so he said it felt kind of counterintuitive to do this kids in the street outside of nashville yeah um but i think there's a specific guy he wanted to record with yeah and that, there's a lot of interesting things about the kids in the street record it's um, might be my favorite it's yeah constantly fluctuating well but he that gave up a lot gorgeous. of gave up a lot of power yeah um when excuse me and it's something i've done i've kind of realized in this last record we made not the shelter session excuse me but uh, our de- debut record sometimes you just gotta let go of certain things like you can't be there for every mix you can't have the final decision on every take you can't oh yeah he said it's like and that's like the parrot on the shoulder for every record up until this one and then he had to back off a little bit and yeah he wasn't even there during the mix yeah so he said the guy would like and i feel maybe you could google who the producer is for that record because it's a, a very famous producer so um he was saying he would send the recordings to an engineer that Justin trusted and that he, re- he did every record with the same engineer. And then that engineer would kind of filter Mike, it to him. Mike Mogus yeah, is right. the producer of kids in the street. Um, so he said, Mike would like, you know, say I need to be by myself when I'm recording yeah. these extra so parts. You need to be alone with the music, yeah. which I get. I totally yeah. get. I love that. So, and I record that. So this Mogus uh, character, he's like recording what Justin called third, like 13 instruments on this album. Wow. And when I record overdubs and stuff like that, I like to record by myself in my office, you know, over and over and over again and kind of, do my own thing and if someone's there it kind of i feel like there's these eyes on me i'm like just get away from me i'm like ha- i'm hashing it out oh, especially if you're hashing out something for another person's music in yeah. front of that person it's like you can't experiment so, so that, i think he, he wanted time one. to record his own but stuff. anyway let's get back to the chronological aspect of it so he releases um 
the good life in 2008 with bloodshot. And then he's been going, he, I'm not sure who he released these records with because he went to so many different record labels after this. Yeah. So he, he recorded midnight in the movie or at the movies in 2009. Um, so do you want to get into that one a little bit? Oh, I, I will say, yeah, he, I, I didn't notice this. I was listening to, I've been listening to him since Sunday nonstop. Um, all his records and I try to listen to them in order on Spotify and was sort of starting to realize like some of these are really, it's not, it's not immediate to me when I first listened to them over the past, you know, 10 years that I've been listening to him, but it wasn't immediate to me that he's making these sort of conceptual records, these kind of concept records, but he talks, he talks a lot about that. And I have one quote from him from the broken record podcast where he says, I always have a conceptual idea about my records, even from the start, even from The Good Life, which is his 2008, his first full-length record. I have this concept of it, even if it's, even though it's light, even if it's a light concept. Uh, he says, I, I always know exactly where I want to start and where I want to end, and that goes with songs and with records. And so then I, he talks about Midnight at the Movies is his two, 2009 release, his second full-length album which he calls pretty conceptual. It's based on, for him, it's based on the book Mindfields, which is a book of poems by Gregory Corso. Corso, who is one of the beat poets that I, I don't really know a lot about, but he explains how, you know, Corso would write about these sort of late night movie theaters and all the different characters you would see there and sort of just like beat is a lot of this like stream of consciousness writing about people in your surroundings. And so he, he, he says he wrote that entire album based on, you know, his inspiration from that. And then he releases Harlem River Blues in 2010. And he says, and if you look at that album, he says it's inspired by moving to New York City. And if you look at that record and the songs on that record, they're all sort of, they're all sort of based in New York City and a very specific place and time. Um, I can't, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he says something about when he's talking about his quote unquote concept records. It's like, it's not like, he doesn't say this, but it's not like the wall. I can't remember the uh, example yeah. he uses where it's like this very specific thing that's sort of obvious, like, oh, this is one big yeah. thing. It's a little more abstract than that, but all the songs on these records fit sort of, theme. they fit a theme for him and for him, they, they fit sort of a time and a place and people and places along with one time frame. So especially if you live in New York City, you know, for a certain amount of time, like all those songs that you write there, end up on you know one of his records so Har uh, harlem river blues 2010 and i think that's when he got like i know he played harlem river blues on, Let on letterman on, yeah letterman which was like one of his bigger might have been the only time he was on letterman i um, think it might have been we watched that's a it the great other night. song i love that record Lord, i'm going up because it just has um more of that full band feel to it mm -hmm. but also the 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 strong backbeat like that I I really like in music with Harlem River um, and it's then also, a few other ones. It's also sort of that song specifically. It's sort of a it's a definitely a melancholy song. It's basically about suicide. Yeah, and it remains today. But it's his upbeat. Most, it's his most popular record, Harlem River. Blues. Yeah, I'm. It's his I'm, most listened to on Spotify. I'm currently on a hunt to find it on vinyl <laughs> because it's nowhere online. So I'm like I'm gonna start. But yeah, it has the a local record store. It has a great great track list it's harlem river blues one more night in brooklyn move over mama working for the mta which is a great song oh yeah wandering 
That's an incredible Can't song. Catch me, yeah. Slipping and sliding, which is a song about addiction and getting and you know, kind of getting out of it, but then getting back into it. It's so um, raw. It's so raw. Ain't waiting. Our it. personal favorite, probably, and uh, Harlem River Blues uh, reprise. I think that dude. That Rogers Park. That's haunting. I heard that uh, the other day when I was listening to him. Um, it's basically Harlem River Blues. I would argue is maybe is one of his most gospel definitely has a gospel songs. vibe to it and so the the reprise is just it's like a it sounds like a female chorus to me or a you know mixed gender chorus but it's I, the women yeah. are very prominent and it's um lord i'm going uptown to the harlem river to drown dirty water's gonna cover me over and i'm not gonna make a sound so it's that but it's a full chorus singing that in like this very it's 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 chilling to me there's no instruments and that's the that's how the record ends it's just them doing that chorus in this very gospel are you gonna play it yeah yeah much better than what i did <laughs> it sounds a lot like what you just did <laughs> so yeah that's kind of the vibe of it it's a great it's just a great chorus it's, it's one of his best choruses he wrote probably um but yeah i love i love that record and that was I must have found him just after that record, maybe a couple years after that record, because I remember listening to that one quite a bit. Um, I I love his songs about New York City. I I don't ever tout like I try not to tout like like I lived in New York because I was only there for like six months. So like I know that it's not really a profound New York experience, but it was. I was twenty one at the time and moved there in the winter and was alone basically and didn't know anybody really and spent six months there. And he's got these songs like down on the Lower East side where he's talking yeah. about just like wandering around New York city. And I just heard those and I was like, Oh man, I, I hear this. Like this is so, this is so relatable for so me. And two years anyway. later he comes out with the longest uh, album title of all time. Oh, I love it. Nothing's going to change the way you feel about me now. He said about, he said, I did not hear this quote today, but I've I've heard it at a different time. He said about that song specifically, that's the title track of the record. He said that's the meanest song I've ever wrote. <laughs> and it's a pretty it's definitely it sounds like a a tumultuous breakup song where he's saying, you know, nothing's going to change the way you feel about me now. You know, you wake up and I'm not there. You still smell my smoke. He says I, n- I never loved you at some point. It's 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 so it's so like gut like raw like breakup song and it it does sound kind of like a mean song but it sounds like it sounds like a yeah it yeah yeah so at this point i feel like his life is pretty much he's a full-blown professional musician touring constantly like oh yeah like they say like all these musicians are road dogs but he was like the road dog among road dogs oh so, yeah because that's you know in the t- 2010s that's how you make your money so it's, it's tough to <laughs> say like to definitively this is where he was there this is when he was in this time in his life he moved to new york city in 2009 eventually moved back to nashville Yeah, it's hard for me to find out how long he was in new york city and then he gets married in 2013 to Jen, Jen Marie Maynard, who we met at a, at yeah, a show. Yeah. Um, and it says Wikipedia is the only place I've seen this, but it alludes that they lived before he passed away, that they lived on the West coast somewhere. And he writes songs about the Pacific Northwest kind of. So I'm like, where? I'm not sure where they lived. Um, I, c- I couldn't, I couldn't find it. Um, it's all possible. Yeah, it's all possible. But but he uh, he recorded a bunch of records after that. 
um, before before his daughter was married, he recorded that trilogy we were talking about: single mothers in fourteen, absent fathers fifteen, and then kids in the street in two thousand seventeen. Yeah, he calls those three records a family trilogy. So single mothers, absent fathers, and kids in the street. I don't know how. I mean, I guess that was the first set of records he put out where it's like, okay, this this does seem very much like concept albums. Um, but it, it took me until really kind of analyzing them like in the last couple days and going, oh gosh, all these songs harken back to this same idea in each of these yeah. records. Kid- it's like for his mom, for his dad, and then Kids in the Street is a lot about like him growing up and being young and he's got a song, maybe a moment where he's like trying to coax this this person out to uh, you know drive drive around with them on a Tuesday night and like maybe a moment, maybe the time of your life. I love the song uh, Champagne Corolla is my favorite on that. Oh yeah, <laughs> but I also love the song If I Was the Devil. That oh song yeah, is that's so, so intense Stuart. and I love so that creepy. Song. Yeah, um, it's just one of those. And then same old Staggly is a great song too. But If I Was the Devil is like a really intense song. Um, so definitely check that one out. And I think we we're probably gonna wrap this up pretty soon. Um, yeah, you want to talk real quick about the last record he released in 2019? Yeah, um, he talks about he talks about songwriting. Uh, let's see, when he talks about his records, he talked a lot in the Walking the Floor podcast about how he puts together a record and how it's he maps it out very consciously. Um, he at some point he calls it a thesis. He says you need a hard beginning, a middle, and an end, and only the most pertinent information. I love that when he's talking about making a making an album. Um, so his last record was released in 2019. It's called The Saint of Lost Causes. And he says the title track took him about six months to write. So there's a quote. This is a recent quote. So I listened to the Broken Record podcast today. They just released, again, they just released this podcast of their interview with him, you know, August, what, 25th, 2020. And they don't say when it's from, but it, again, it sounds like it's pre-pandemic the way that they're talking about touring and stuff. Um, and so he's asked, you know, what because Justin is saying all my records start with sort of this concrete idea of where I want to end, where I want it to begin and and what I want this theme to be. And so they ask him about uh, the saint of lost causes and they say, where, where did that, what did you want to achieve with this? And he, he says uh, it started and this is back in, I'm assuming 2019 that he's saying this. It started with the idea of, you know, you're looking at people like Eric Gardner choked out by cops the Me Too movement, all these things of all these people, it's like, wait, all these people, black people, Mexican people, women, we've treated them horribly. So what I was trying to get at was the fact that if you keep poking at the underclass or or what you call the underclass or what you assume the underclass, uh, you keep poking at us, eventually we're going to strike back and you won't like it. A little prophetic in a way. Right? And it's (laughs) just like, from everything that's been happening in 2020, um, yeah, so, and he does a lot of storytelling. He talks a little bit about specific songs on Saint of Lost Causes and how he's trying to sort of embody these different American stories from people that he has met. Like one is like his bass player from Puerto Rico that he met when he lived in Alphabet City in New York and how he was arrested for some bullshit reason and like met his daughter getting off a bus and anyway he's like he's so he's sort of starting to tell other people's stories so this is really it almost embodies 
this album Americana in the way that it's now he's starting to tell American stories through these sort of different avenues as different characters and not made up characters, characters of people that he knows. And he really gets into that. Um, so yeah, so that's his last, that's his last record. And um, so, yeah, he, uh, like we said in the beginning of the podcast, he, he was found dead, I think on the 20th and. Oh the, yeah. What was it? He, um, I have, no, the, I think they said he, I think he was found dead on the 20th and they announced it on the 23rd. They announced it on Sunday. Uh, Thursday is when, so I have the Rolling Stones article quote, Justin Towns Earl likely died from a quote unquote probable drug overdose. A spokesperson at the Metro Nashville police department confirmed to Rolling Stone on Tuesday, police conducted a welfare check at the 38 year old songwriters Nashville apartment on Sunday after one of Earl's friends said they hadn't heard from him since Thursday, which would have been the 20th MNPD spokesperson Don Aaron told Rolling Stone that the Nashville fire department entered the residence and found Earl dead. Uh, in another article, they say no foul play just to say that, uh, an autopsy is pending. So what, what it sounds like to me is, is that, his family, so his wife and his his daughter, he has a three-year-old at a St. James, uh, weren't in Nashville with him. It sounds like he was in a they Nashville might, apartment, a separate location and they probably. live in a house, and again, maybe on the West Coast. Too. Yeah. Like, there, it well, hasn't, hasn't been, been an conf- autopsy. There hasn't, it hasn't been confirmed that it was a drug overdose. I think it's likely, mm-hmm. um, but I just want to say to cover our bases, like that... This is all preliminary. This is the Wednesday after Sunday when it was announced. Yeah, it was Sunday announced Sunday. Media started announcing that he'd passed away, but there was no cause of death. And then yesterday, I think, is when they started saying it was a probable so just drug to kind of go extrapolate from this probable drug overdose. It, it kind of brought us back to that quote from the Chris Shifflin interview where he was like. I've been touring since I was 15 years old. Like I'm good at touring. It's when I get back that I start to he lose to my adjust. shit. Yeah. And it's like with this COVID situation, everyone's locked down. Like no one can tour. They just yeah. actually announced in Contra Costa County that you're not even allowed to play like outdoor patios and stuff anymore. Shit. So you can only imagine someone with the, you know, the, the addiction history that Justin Towns Earl has. Excuse me. You know, that goes hand in hand with his safe space being on the road. Yeah. He says he's having a task yeah, at hand. He's like, I'm so good at being on the road. I'm not good at being at home. He says that it's a, he says that throughout all these interviews I've been listening to today. So I imagine this was, uh, just tearing him apart, being unable to, you know, tour. And, and I'm assuming he was maybe in Nashville to do some, music to do some recording maybe to do some that kind of thing maybe nashville's having outdoor music i'm not sure why he was there but it sounds like he was apart from and the story will unfurl too yeah we'll see it makes me just so sad because it's like the you we've talked about drawing a line between him and his father like this whole time right and his Mm -hmm. father left him when he was two three years old yeah and now his daughter's going to be in a very similar situation, which that was what really killed me. Like the night that I heard the news, it's like, it's just a very, it's like a, obviously not on purpose. Like his father's situation was, but it's, it's almost like history, like 
playing a, like a cruel trick on him. You well, know, it like, breaks my heart too because I've been listening to him talking about um, how he wants to be a better father and for his daughter and how, gosh, he said in the interview I listened to today, the broken record interview is really heartbreaking. He says like, you know, it's, it's, it's not, he says something like, it's not, it's not interesting for a musician to die after 30, you know, it's like 27, twenties is like this like magic and by your thirties, you should know better. He says that. And it's like, it's like, this was his nightmare of like, I don't know. It's, it's, it breaks my heart for him. Um, he deserved better. This family. whole, yeah, the, he deserved better. This whole world fucking was real tough on him. And I think he did the best he could. And he, God damn, he came out with eight incredible, thoughtful, gorgeous records. Like he never turned out a bad record. Like I can't, he was just one of those artists that we kept paying attention to. And I could name a lot that it's like, I love these records. And then I stopped paying attention for a little while. Cause it just, it got cheap or something and he never let his songwriting do that. It was always so he was always so obsessive over it. And he talks about songwriting a lot and how he's constantly doing all these drafts. He says in the last uh, podcast I listened to, you know, if you stole one of my notebooks, like a full notebook full of writing, you'd probably have two of my songs in there because I'm constantly rewriting things over and over again until it, until it fits right until it's exactly how it should be. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely heartbroken. Yeah, we were both heartbroken. It was a real shitty Sunday. It was a shitty Monday, too, when you wake up and you realize that it's real. All I wanted to do was just watch, like, Tom could be like, we can watch, like, a show or something. And I was like, I can't think about anything else right now. I've All I can do is, like, watch videos and playing. Um, I, I recommend, uh, I recommend if you're going to get on YouTube to play his uh, Starter Won't Start video from that little library yeah. to start it off. <laughs> Um, what else ain't waiting uh, is a classic um, to sort of get his earlier earlier songwriting What's that and song? his keep moving picking. or whatever uh, oh uh, mama, mov- moving on uh, is that yeah oh or trying to move on. it's moving on or trying trying to move it on it's right yeah. here it's the 10th song on nothing's gonna change the way you feel about me now yeah. I think it's why I bought this one on vinyl because moving on is one of my favorite songs and it's about he plays that live on I think it's KEXP yeah. uh, if you YouTube it and he he says something like in the beginning when he intros that he's like you know my mom and dad I've just released the record and my mom and dad haven't heard it yet and when they do I'm sure they're gonna call yeah. <laughs> and then he just starts the song and it's it's yeah it's it's about his father breaking his mother's heart in half it's about conversations he's having on the road with his mom where they're both pretending they don't know why he's sick it's it's so it's so guts to the wall and it's just what i love about his songwriting is he was he's just so vulnerable and he's he says and this is his quote in one of these uh interviews he says you have to be ballsy you know and it's true it's like you have to write these songs because people are constantly asking him like oh what did your father think when he first heard mama's eyes like what did your father think when he first heard this song about him being a shitty dad or whatever it was and justin's like you just got to be ballsy with your songwriting it's like that's that's what makes it good that's what makes it interesting um and it's inspiring because i've definitely been a little safe in songwriting and it makes me want to be a little more you know yeah yeah just put it out there yeah, just go for but, it. But um, yeah, rest in peace, Justin Towns Earl. He was like a huge influence to us. We were big, big fans of his. We were really fortunate to have seen him so many yeah. times. And this goes back to what we've said multiple times on this podcast: like, if you have a chance to see somebody, 
go see them. Yeah, go see them. Because you never know. Like, yeah, you might have work the next day. Might be fifty dollars. You might have to drive forty minutes to go see it. But it's yeah. like you never know when it's going to be over. I hope in this new world post COVID when we can actually yeah, go to live concerts. That, that we, no, but I mean when we can go back again, yeah. that we'll have so much more energy too to just to just commit to these things because it's so important that you go see live yeah. music when you can. And I'm so I'm so grateful that we did. Um, and yeah, I think he has. I I got really annoyed when I was reading these articles that were like you know his songwriting rivaled his dad's and i'm like stop comparing him to his father like he even in death can't avoid it yeah he (laughs) is so such an incredible singer songwriter i would say like embodies what i think of when i think of americana um and so talented in every single aspect of what he said oh i want to say one last thing before we wrap um one thing so i watched one of his videos today he did a video with rolling stones called your first and one of the questions was the first time you first time a song made you cry and he said uh don't think twice it's all right by bob dylan is the first song that he remembers making him cry but then he says i'm a huge billy holiday fan any billy anytime i hear billy holiday sing i want to cry and he wrote a song and i think i think it's on it's in his 2014 record i think it's on single mothers and it's white gardenias about billy holiday so him and i kind of share this real love and admiration for billy holiday and he says you know she was a big influence on his sing. we didn't talk a lot about his singing but that she was a big influence on his singing because it was like you don't have to have a crazy range you don't have to do these crazy runs you know you can just create your own sort of unique voice and and make something really beautiful for your storytelling and that yeah, so he. Well, that's something we can identify we have that with. In common. <laughs> we have that in common. Yeah. White Gardenias is a song about Billie Holiday. I've seen him play it live, and it's heartbreaking. And he he said about the song, he's like, I wanted to write a song about Billie Holiday that they were both, by the way, had uh, issues with heroin. And he says, I wanted to write a song about Billie Holiday that wasn't about her being a junkie. I wanted it to just be this kind of graceful song. And he yeah. just pulled off this gorgeous song. So. We have a kinship there. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it sucks that he's gone. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, I don't even know how to say it. It just fucking sucks. It's, it's bullshit. Uh, somebody sent in a tweet, 2020 is a fucking thief. You know, it's like not to blame the year, but it's like the, it's, it's such a robbery from American culture and the future of what he could have made. And I mean, that being said, only he put 38 out eight, years old when he died, 38, it's like, his last record he put out last year, again, he's never put out a bad record. Like he just kept getting better and better and like expressing more about, um, just sort of like embodying this American roots music and doing something new with it and changing country and being sort of a pioneer. And he doesn't associate himself in the country world, but he gets grouped into that a lot. Like what bums me about one of the things is like, you listen to someone like a Johnny cash or a Bob Dylan and they're obviously like maybe on a different, uh, pedestal or tier that America puts them on than Justin Towns Earl. But they were creating incredible music. Like he didn't start, uh, Johnny Cash didn't start recording uh, with Rick Rubin until like the early nineties, yeah, mid nineties. So it's like he had this whole second career where he made a ton of incredible music after this initial burst. So it's like, and he was like in his sixties, he had a Renaissance and it's like, that's, another 15 years of incredible music. It's like, you don't have that anymore with Justin Townsville. It's like, you have these eight records 
have the interviews. You don't you have, have that opportunity for him to create YouTube these. YouTube videos. Yeah. And that's it. I'm grateful for what we have. You know, that's kind of what you have to focus on is he has left an insane legacy behind. At the age of 38 to have eight full-length records is insane. And we're lucky to have it. Um, he also, I think he was doing a lot. He was just kind of... I don't know. He he said at his live shows a lot. He's like, there, I've heard him say there is no more country music or something like that. Yeah, he's he's like, like, country music's dead. He's he, like, he it was, died with Hank Williams. You know, it's like, okay, you know, and he talks about that. But at the same time, like, I don't know. He was also kind of a pioneer. And this doesn't sound like much in like the mid 2000s, but like, like 2014 or something, he came out with a video of one of his more country songs with like a same sex couple as like the protagonist in the video. And it's like, that's just him. He was like, yeah. fuck CMT, <laughs> fuck the country world. Like yeah. I'm going to keep moving forward and do what I want. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's important. And I, I wanted to see him do more. Yeah, me too. Anyway, uh, my heart. feels super unimportant to talk about now, but just a little bit of radio <laughs> keys updates. Uh, we have our shelter sessions record dropping September 4th. So that's next Friday. And then we're going to do a special performance September 5th, to kind of help grease it along. Yeah, I can't believe we're in September. <laughs> yeah, we're <laughs> almost there. Smokes. And then um, we uh, we have our vinyl records out for our debut album. So those you can order online at radiokeysmusic.com. And that's uh, pretty much it. So I guess uh, my name's Stuart. My name's Emily. And I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other <laughs> side, and we're going to keep searching for, for that sweet soul music.